And then it hit me that Iyengar Yoga developed a very specific practice to suit women or what they perceive as women's needs through menstruation, pregnancy, um, menopause, and then in between. They also have practices for brain injuries like I had and they have many specific departments dealing with different kind of ailments but then when it comes to women it's not right it's not an ailment to be a woman and it's not a stage in life like being a child but then the fact that they have a department called yoga for women really intrigued me what does that mean what does that imply which women all women all the time Hi there, welcome to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and I am a PhD student hoping to gain some insights into academia and PhDing by listening to the academic journeys of my peers. Today I'm chatting with Agi Wittig. Agi is uh, actually done with her PhD, she has already completed it in the beginning of this academic year. Um, and her PhD was in comparative religion at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and she specifically focused on women and yoga. And in addition, Agi still uh, not only practices yoga herself, she has also been taught by teachers from all over the world, and she is also a certified yoga instructor, and she even trains other teachers. But before we dive into the world of yoga, I'd like to invite you to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled like the number two. And we'd love to hear from you, so do connect with us. We also have a blog on our website and videos on our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. Let me get back to Agi now. Agi has practiced yoga since she was a teenager and is a certified yoga instructor since 2006. She started her academic journey in 2012 with a BA in Comparative Religion and Philosophy at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Agi then continued with an MA in the same field at the same university and she wrote a thesis on yoga in daily life. She has recently completed her PhD which was titled Her Yoga Women-Oriented Iyengar Yoga, Between Innovation and Tradition. Agi already has four article publications on her name and is a peer reviewer herself for the Asian Medicine Journal and the European Journal of Women's Studies. And as if that wasn't enough, Agi also managed to get funding to attend and present at international conferences and has been part of various research groups at the Center for Jewish and Democratic Law at Barilan University and the Minerva Center for Human Rights at Tel Aviv University. All of this, of course, while practicing and teaching yoga. Welcome, Agi. I'm so excited to learn more about yoga and about academia on yoga today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm having my regular amaretto with me, right here, my small little bottle. What are you having today? I'm having chai uh, in a mug that uh, some friends of mine from north of Israel, from Roshpina, uh, made. So it's a handmade mug. 
Okay, I saw the really big one, the blue one. Yes. So that allows you to have a lot in one go. It's beautiful. That's correct. So it's a chai uh, with non-dairy milk. Uh, (laughs) So a kind of a blend uh, between uh, the tastes that I acquired in uh, in India in my many visits and uh, my non-dairy diet. All right, very cool. I can not I can only see it, but I can imagine the smell of it because I've also been in India once for just a very short time, but I remember the smell, the such strong smell of the chais that were made on every corner of the street. Uh, so it's nice to be reminded of that. Yes, I think part of the magic of India is the mixture of uh, senses and tastes and Whatever comes to the senses is really overwhelming. That's right. In the bad, but also in the good way, I think. Oh, yeah, in the good way as well, of course. (laughs) All right, well, cheers. Cheers. Okay, so now that we're sipping our drinks, both with very different smells, because mine (laughs) smells really nice too, but in a different way. I wanted to ask you a few short questions, really. What is your morning routine like? Do you start your day with yoga? Um, yes, I do. Um, I, I admit that life has changed since I gave birth a year and a half ago. Uh, but whenever I can, I come back to my morning routine, which is basically the moment I get up, I start observing the breath. And as soon as I can, I sit down for uh, an early meditation Uh, It can be in bed, it can be, uh, in winter usually it's in bed, in summer or in warmer times, uh, it's outside of bed, uh, perhaps in a separate room. And it takes me about half an hour of sitting and then I get up, usually drink a cup of chai and then go to my yoga routine. Since having a baby, it's more about observing uh, my body and my uh, feelings and being more mindful about whatever goes on since uh, my schedule has been quite hectic since mm-hmm. giving birth. So it's about, it's, it's less about me and more about someone else. And how old is your little one now? He's about a year and a half. Okay, so it has been changing for a while now, but it's probably going to keep changing a bit more. Yes, yes. And I do hope to get back to my morning routine. Um, I just realized that things have changed. I haven't lost anything. And and whatever comes next will be also a blessing. That sounds very good. All right. Um, my next question is also related to yoga, because that's obviously what we'll be talking about a lot today. Um, at what time of the day do you like to do yoga best? And do you also have a favorite location or place where you like to do yoga? So I have a yoga room uh, in my house. And actually in the last 10 years or perhaps 12, uh, in every house I rented out, I have a yoga hall or a yoga room. So it's basically an empty room that is um, is dedicated to the practice of yoga. Uh, sometimes we host uh, people over in that empty room. Sometimes uh, we just do things there that require some space. 
But this is something very important to me, to have a designated area to practice. So even if it's a very small uh, apartment, I would have a separate room for the practice. But like you said, it could also be a hallway that is then empty of any other things that you could use for this. Uh, not a hallway, but a hall. So in the, my last apartment, I had a huge room, really okay. a practice hall, where I also taught yoga. So I taught yoga okay. uh, in, in my house in a, in a big area. So you do need the bigger space. I get it. I, I need a separate space. It doesn't have to be big. My current yoga room is quite small, but I do need a separate space to practice, to put my uh, yoga gear and just to, to, to be able to close the door. Right. All right. Sounds good. Um, I, for one, have tried yoga here and there in a gym where they offer a yoga course once a week or something like that. So nothing very serious. I'm not very familiar with it. So what would you say to any peers, right, who are also doing their PhDs or just finished, just like you, uh, who are listening, who haven't really tried yoga yet? Why should they try it? And, and what do you recommend? I can say that yoga helps to improve uh, focus and give some inspiration just because it offers special time for one person to look inside, to be more aware or more mindful. And of course, it also involves movement in today's contemporary yoga. Usually it's about yoga postures, less than about philosophy or uh, scriptures or myth or whatever else. The, the field of yoga is vast. So contemporary yoga classes are yoga posture focused. And that's really good for uh, PhD students because they tend to sit a lot on a chair. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I would say that uh, yoga practice is better than walking or, or taking a swim or horse riding. Uh, but I will say that movement is very important for a PhD student. Um, for me, uh, I wrote most of my dissertation sitting on the floor in, in different yoga postures that really helped my back. I think it also helped my concentration and the ability to sit for uh, long periods of time. Right. But I'm not here to advocate yoga classes for, <laughs> for PhD right. students. No, but it is interesting because from what I did understand, indeed, uh, that the posture is very important. It helps you realize how you're sitting or moving. Um, and you often don't no notice that when you're writing your dissertation for hours in a row in the same chair, right? So it could be very helpful in a lot of different ways, not only with the mindset or meditation, but also with the posture and probably a lot of other things that we'll talk about. I agree. It also alleviates stress. Yeah, I could, I could use that. So I'm interested. <laughs> then let's dig into your academic journey and see how stressful that was for you, even though you were studying yoga. Um, what led you really to start at the start, right? To begin with a BA in comparative religion and philosophy. For example, I didn't know that comparative religion was a study in and of its own and, and what is that combination with philosophy? How did you get started there? First, I signed up to study philosophy. Uh, I just came back from India, from uh, the big trip. 
and um, I was interested in, in studying philosophy and I was very disappointed to find out that um, the Department of Philosophy at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, similarly to other universities in Israel, they teach Western philosophy under the title of philosophy, almost no mention of Eastern philosophies. To learn about that, you would have to sign up for different departments. Uh, at, so I signed up to religious studies to study about uh, Indian philosophy. And that drew me in more and more uh, to my MA that was only in, in comparative religions and then my, my PhD. So the interest for India was always there. And uh, I found a lot of answers, but then many more questions in academia. I hear that a lot. <laughs> and especially in philosophy, somehow um, people always have more questions instead of more answers. But that's what makes it more exciting, I feel, too. And people who are working in this field are often very, very passionate. Um, so then still, what is the comparative religion? Because... You said you started with philosophy, turned out to be very Western-oriented, which is not necessarily what you were looking for. So what was there in comparative religion where you were able to find what you were interested in? Um, the Department of Comparative Religions in the Hebrew University has a sub, uh, subdivision of uh, Hindu studies. So that's okay. basically where I was. I did learn about Christianity, Islam and Judaism, uh, with comparison to one another and then with comparison to Hinduism. But my, my main focus was about Hindu culture, uh, Indian philosophy and uh, literature, poetry. And actually yoga studies is not yet a developed uh, department on its own. Uh, mm -hmm. Research has emerged the last 10 years. <laughs> And it's, it's an emerging field. So the closest I could get to that was the sub-department of, of Hindu studies within comparative religions at the Hebrew University. Okay, so that was the angle. And then with your BA, you found out that that was the angle you wanted to go in. And you continued with that in the same department, right? For your yes. MA. Yes. And then you wrote your thesis uh, that was focusing very much on, on yoga and daily life. Um, so... Tell me a little bit more about this, this research that you did. So my MA research was focusing on a yoga community in south of India, in Tamil Nadu, uh, where at the time only men were initiated as, um, let's say, ascetic yoga practitioners. And I was drawn into that community and into the, uh, the, t the main text that they are studying and living by, which is the Tirumandiram, a text written in Tamil that contains uh, more than 3,000 verses. Wow. So I studied the text and the community, but I was more focusing on the text as the MA thesis was limited in scope. And I was asking, how can one live by an ancient text today? So the text is dated to, the earliest would be the 6th century, and it has many components in it that make modern life very difficult, such as fasting, 
not speaking a day a month and uh, other um, uh, other aspects of life that are or dietary aspects that are quite difficult to follow and still be part of modern society so during my research i was interviewing these uh, initiate uh, ascetics and i tried to understand how are they combining this uh, these ancient practices with modern life Okay, very interesting. It's interesting to me that something that is so old is is still looked at uh, for spiritual guidance and and still trying to be adapted to yeah today's life. Someone who lives today to live according to those texts. And of course, I mean Judaism and other religions in the world are also very old, <laughs> but we also know that they have developed and changed over time. And for someone to take a very original text like the one that you studied for your MA and to try to apply it to today's life. Uh, that's intriguing. Are there a lot of people who are still uh, following this text? At the time of my MA thesis, uh, it was a very small community. And since then, it has grown uh, quite a lot. And many... Today, today the guru has many followers and many students, and every year he keeps on initiating uh, his best students. And uh, what I'm, what I would like to look at in the future is the fact that he has started to initiate women. Okay. So in 2019, I was there at the community and I interviewed three women that went through initiation, and since then. He initiated five more. And the issue of, of women uh, taking upon themselves this very unique lifestyle is very intriguing. Yes, actually, that was going to be my next question, but you were faster than me because you said it's something that is difficult to implement in today's life because you spoke about dietary things, about not speaking for a day a month. But what about the role of men and women? That was very different, I imagine, in the sixth century than it is today. As well, so so he it's something new of this guru who has now been initiating women. Um, yes, uh, it's something new. I know of other communities that follow this text, but I haven't researched them uh, deeply yet. And um, they do have also women, but I don't think they conduct initiations. And yes, on his part, it's something quite new. Uh, he says that he got permission from the author of the text, who is said to be still alive, uh, okay. to initiate women. So Wow, <laughs> that is interesting too. Okay. Um, and also something that just popped into my mind, as someone that I told you I've done yoga once or twice in my life, mainstream, in a gym, you know, very casually, Um, and I've, I've, I'm a big fan of Netflix and all kinds of shows that are popping up on it. And I've seen the, the series on the Bajwan, right? Those are the things that I'm getting through that is related to gurus and, and yoga when you use terms like that. Um, and there it was very problematic because this Bajwan, who then also moved to the United States, actually really had uh, a cult around him. And he there's also stories of how he has abused both men and women um, in this sacred space that he calls also belonging to yoga and and other aspects of, of ancient uh, Hindu culture. 
but he was abusing that, obviously. He was probably never someone who was actually in it for this uh, spiritual gain. He was also taking a lot of money from people and also abusing them. Um, is, is that something that when you speak about your research in Western universities, something that people want you to address? So I wonder, Dani, if you're confusing uh, Sri Bhagavan Rajanish, who is known by his name Osho, who is a tantric teacher with Bikram Choudhury, who is the uh, developer of uh, Bikram Yoga, who was accused of uh, sexual assault, while Osho was more um, accused of uh, having a cult at the United States and having some kinds of um, slavery conditions for his followers. Uh, anyway, both of them are quite troubling. <sighs> right. Yeah, I only remember the name, the Bajram. That's the only thing. But I think that, that was also not his name. That was a title that he had, right? Yeah, but he wasn't teaching yoga or pastoral yoga. or he was. But he was a Hindu guru. So going back to your question, uh, in Hindu... Sorry, in yoga studies, uh, there is... There are questions about abuse of power by gurus. Um, and when I'm looking at that guru community, I haven't looked yet um, on the dynamics between the, the guru and, and his disciples. Uh, but I did look at how this ancient text is implemented. I will have to look uh, at that at certain point if I continue doing research on that community, of course. In my PhD dissertation, I did look at, uh, so another guru, BKS Iyengar, and then his family members. And there, there, there were uh, cases of abuse, but not from the guru, but from prominent uh, Iyengar yoga teachers. And that was addressed. Uh, it's questionable whether or not it was addressed uh, well enough, uh, but I think that's a separate uh, mm -hmm. a separate issue. Um, I don't know. Did I answer your question? I think you did, and uh, I have to say that I also understand that it's not something that's inherent to yoga or to Hindu culture, but it is something inherent to hierarchies, right? And any group of people that comes together where someone is, um, you know, a level up from other people that abuse is very common in those settings, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with yoga or with Hindu culture. Um, just so that's clear that I'm not, don't have any strange ideas too much about yoga or something. You said that you practice a, a kind of a mainstream yoga, and that takes me uh, to the point that contemporary yoga is uh, in a way uh, quite secular. I could say secular to uh, to avoid saying that it is religious, but then again, I could say that it is spiritual, which a kind which is a kind of religiosity which is quite free uh, and quite open for personal interpretation. So you could say, I believe in a higher force, but that higher force is not communicated through my yoga instructor. So in mainstream yoga, uh, you would find these certain symbols, perhaps in a yoga class, that remind you the origins of yoga, which is India, uh, but not not for certain that you will find something that is uh, with Hindu roots, 
you might hear Sanskrit in class, you might hear some reference to um, Indian mythology, uh, but I think the, in mainstream yoga, the teacher is not regarded as a guru, and there is a different kind of hierarchy, especially in today's uh, capitalistic society where the teacher is the the provider of services and the student is the customer. So that's another different power dynamics. Okay, um, let's move on to get to your PhD. So at this point, uh, we've talked about your BA, why you started there, how you continued with your MA and your research. But then my question kind of was, as I was looking over uh, your academic journey, um, you were a yoga teacher, both practicing and teaching. And you already had the MA in your pocket. So what brought you to also pursue a PhD? Was it something that you always were interested in research or you just weren't done yet? Or do you want to... Uh, was it not enough to only practice it and to teach it? That's a very good question. So I'm still teaching yoga and I'm still researching it. <laughs> it hasn't stopped yet. Um so why did I continue for my PhD? I think I was so thirsty that I couldn't stop. Okay. Um, I was thirsty for knowledge and for more answers. And when I finished my MA, I realized that I was looking at constantly at men. And the history of yoga uh, was written by men for men. And yoga practices... Um, from the 11th century onwards, that's the earliest that we have, according to today's knowledge, the earliest that we have texts that um, specifically talk about yoga postures and yoga manipulations and yoga bodily techniques. Um, and these texts were written by men for men, uh, specifically for the male body, um, many times referring to male reproductive organs. And I realized that it has a huge dissonance with today's reality, which is that the majority of yoga practitioners and teachers worldwide are women. Okay. So my initial question for my PhD was how this came to be, uh, when did it happen? But then I came across a great book that answered that question. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that happens. I've heard that before. <laughs> and um, I had a horrible car accident in 2014, oh. just when I finished my MA. And I was I already signed up for my PhD, and I had to take half a year of a break. I couldn't wow. attend classes. I couldn't... Um, move too much. I had to stop completely my yoga practice, which is something unheard of among Iyengar yoga teachers. And I had to heal uh, through rest, complete rest. And during uh, that time, I had a lot of time to think. And I was thinking about this dissonance between uh, women practicing yoga today, the benefits that they uh, they, that they acquire through the yoga practice, and then the male history of yoga. And what helped me to come out of this uh, horrible car accident was actually therapeutical Iyengar yoga. 
or just Iyengar yoga. And then it hit me that Iyengar yoga developed a very specific practice to suit women or what they perceive as women's needs through okay. menstruation, pregnancy, um, menopause, and then in between. They also have practices for brain injuries like I had, and they have many specific departments dealing with different kind of ailments. But then when it comes to women, it's not, right? It's not an ailment to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And it's not a stage in life like being a child. So they have yoga for children. But then the fact that they have a department called yoga for women really intrigued me. What does that mean? What does that imply? Which women? All women? All the time? Are there any times in a woman's life when she practices as men do? Uh, is it a totally separate practice? What are the differences between the practices, let's say the general practice and the, the, the adapted practice? So that, that started, this started me thinking that I should explore that. Um, I realized that no one has written about yoga for women in, in that. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So in a, in a gender perspective, no one looked at that. They did look uh, at why did Western women uh, take up yoga in the 1950s, let's say. And where did they take it up and, and how did it came to be? But they did not look at uh, specific practices for women. And then when I started asking colleagues in the Iyengar yoga community about uh, specific practices for women, they said, there's no such thing, Agi. There is just Iyengar yoga. So these, this subdivision, it's, it's a category in your mind. It does not exist. And I said, well... You have Iyengar Yoga for Menstruation book, Iyengar Yoga for Pregnancy book, and there is one in German of Iyengar Yoga for Menopause. How can you say that these are not specific practices for women? And, and men won't apply these practices in his daily life. So I realized that it's something new. It's hidden in, place, in plain sight. And I realized that I have to write about it. Okay, and you did. And what is your PhD research and your project really about, about yoga and women? But what is it specifically? I looked at the work of Gita Iyengar, who is the daughter of, the, uh, of BKS Iyengar, the founder of Iyengar Yoga. And she, uh, she taught women since she was 16 years old. After her mother died, she started helping her father in teaching uh, women in his classes. And she acquired all this knowledge about how does it feel as a woman to practice yoga? How does other women feel while they are practicing since they were talking more freely to her than to her father in, in India, in this more of a, a traditional society? And... Um, in the 70s, she started writing a book about all this knowledge that she got about yoga for women. And after the book came out in the early 1980s, um, she realized that she needs to teach, she needs to teach this more uh, specifically and, and also broadly 
to uh, female uh, Iyengar yoga teachers from around the world who kept on asking her questions about how to adjust the yoga practice to someone who is pregnant with a certain condition, how to uh, practice while having um, uh, heat waves uh, during menopause, uh, how should one practice if uh, if their menstruation is not regular and so on. And she just kept on teaching and teaching in classes and workshops and writing articles and then encouraging her students to write more about how to adapt uh, yoga practices for women. So that's what I started with. And then I analyzed it more. And I realized that um, Iyengar Yoga... So this community um, reconstructed a narrative that says that women have always practiced yoga um, since the beginning of time. They point to uh, the Indian goddess Parvati, who is the wife and also the student of the first yogi, the god Shiva. And then they uh, continue this line of mythological ca characters and figures all the way into Indian folklore. Uh, and they just claim that these completely new practices are old, uh, they are ancient, and okay. they are a mere development of something uh, that is rooted in, uh, in Indian um, culture. And then I started looking at what, what, what are the values that are communicated through this um, adapted yoga uh, practices. And I realized that there is this very strong pronatal uh, views on the essence of women. So the, um, the practice is centered about, uh, around uh, women's fertility, their ability to become pregnant, and then the health of their pregnancy, uh, having an easy uh, birth, and then also uh, postpartum practices, which was very surprising to me. Yeah. And I looked into what happens to women uh, once they become mothers in Iyengar Yoga. Do they keep on practicing a rigorous practice of, let's say, 90 minutes for the minimum or three hours, four hours for the maximum? And what I discovered is that they, they practice less and less. And then I realized this on my own as well after becoming a mother. And uh, how this affects their, let's say, seriousness about practice and how this affects their advancement. Because in Iyengar Yoga, there is a very strict hierarchy. Uh, and in order to advance in that hierarchy, you have to practice a lot. You have to be in a very good physical shape. And then becoming a mother for one or two or three children really uh, stops you from advancing in that hierarchy. So that was another huge um, uh, finding in the research. Wow. Okay. I, I heard a few things. And what was interesting to me is that the women who were thinking about how to uh, do yoga nowadays as women that they try to connect it in a way to the culture and to the ancient history and, and that it was already a part, that it's not actually something modern or something new. Is that so important to that to the people who, who follow that culture that it has to be embedded in their culture, otherwise it's not legit? Well, yes, the, the question of uh, legitimization is, is quite big. 
and uh, my uh, the dissertation was titled between innovation and and tradition because Iyengar yoga is a is a guru uh, based uh, community or a lineage centered uh, community uh, having a teacher having a lineage an uninterrupted lineage of teachers and students is very important to them and the practices are heavily um the publications of Iyengar yoga are heavily cited with sanskrit uh, sources uh, in a way to justify or legitimize uh, novel practices that they have developed so it's 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 interesting because on one hand of course uh, the credit goes to the Iyengars for developing and creating these new practices but at the same time uh, the Iyengars would claim that this is something uh, ancient and old i think that in order to teach women in india in the 1930s and onwards ayengar had to justify what he was doing and the way he was justifying it to the indian community was uh, through uh, citing uh, sanskrit texts but then uh, the question comes to why are western teachers or contemporary teachers still in 2020 uh, are still citing from these texts. And I think that comes from a sense of romanticizing uh, Iyengar Yoga, saying that it's not something new, but very old and therefore um, esoteric and interesting and exotic. So for a very different reason then, again. Yes. Okay, and apparently it did work, right? Because... Uh, we spoke earlier about how there are also women being initiated now. So it is all right now for women to practice and to climb up in this hierarchy nowadays, would you say? The initiation is in that uh, South Indian um, community that I researched in my MA and possibly in my postdoc. Okay, uh, so it's not related to your PhD. No, in Iyengar Yoga, um, so VKS Iyengar started teaching women in the 1930s. And from the start, women were practicing yoga and teaching yoga. Okay. Right. Which is very cool. <laughs> yes, and, and unique and important and democratic. And, and worth a PhD project. And worth a PhD project. Because you recently completed your PhD. Yes. Right? Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I suppose that was a uh, manuscript, a book that you wrote as a dissertation? Yes. And I do hope to publish it in the form of a book one day. Okay. I was also going to ask, are you now planning on maybe writing any articles out of it, but you want to publish it as a book? I would like to publish it as a book. I have already, um, as you already said, one article out there about, um, which is kind of an intro to my, to my dissertation. And there is one more uh, chapter in a book, which is an offshoot from, from the research. But yes, I would like to see it uh, come out in the form of a book with many pictures to illustrate uh, what really goes on in Iyengar Yoga for women classes. Very cool. And you said that uh, yoga studies in and of itself isn't a very established field yet, even though it's growing and there's more people working on it. You said that no one has looked into this gender angle yet. You're one of the first ones to be doing that. 
Um, are there is there a community of researchers that is working on yoga, women, and yoga in the academic world? Yes. So I was extremely fortunate to join the first yoga studies conference in um, it was 2016 at Krakow University, and the, it get, it gathered re researchers from around the world working on yoga. It included uh, scholars on yoga philosophy, history of yoga, um, and more uh, scholars that are looking at recent developments within yoga or contemporary yoga. And just um, a week ago, I was at the second yoga studies conference at Krakow University, okay. and it was uh, amazing to see how many more people have joined that very small community um, this is thanks to the work at SOAS University in London that have now, I think, MA studies uh, for yoga okay. studies. And there are certain centers around the world. There is one in the United States. And, um, and in Vienna, they had a five-year project on yoga and Ayurveda. And that really draws in... Uh, new students and new curious scholars to look into yoga. The field of yoga and gender is also growing. Uh, when I started my PhD, um, some very high professors told me that I'm wasting my time since looking at yoga and women is, is not interesting. Wow. And today, <laughs> so a week ago, I was in a panel of yoga and gender and I'm also part of a yoga and gender research group of uh, a few scholars, all women from around the world. And we meet uh, via Zoom. And uh, I, I really hope that one day we'll have more and more research on yoga and gender, which is much needed. Yeah, I was going to say, um, maybe there's like in a male-dominated academic world on the higher end of the hierarchy, right? Um, wouldn't they be approaching you like, why are you studying yoga and women? Like, who cares about the women who were bored in the 50s and 60s and took on yoga from another part of the world? Um, and people have been telling you that, apparently. Um, but you pushed through anyway, and now you found out that there are other researchers also working on this. And I guess it's also interdisciplinary, right? They do connect with other departments and other faculties. Uh, do you still experience a lot of pushback or now that you have your title do you feel like people are taking your work more seriously now there is much less pushback um, since i think the me too movement there is much more awareness to issues of gender um, in whatever field and yes the field of yoga studies is very interdisciplinary and there are scholars from uh, history, geography, many from sociology and ethnography, uh, from linguistics, from studies of movement, and it's all very exciting. All right. Uh, before I'm going to ask you what's going to be next after uh, the PhD, and you already said something about a book, I wanted to ask one more question, and that is how do you combine the practicing, the teaching, and researching yoga all at the same time. And do you think that maybe the practicing influences your research or maybe even the other way around, that your research influences the way you practice? That's a very good question. And I've been asking myself that for the last eight years um, because I had a lot of criticism 
uh, from both the yoga community and the academic community. They were uh, each in turn accusing me of being biased and not serious enough. enough. So if I'm, why am I wasting my time on yoga practice when I can write more? Or why am I wasting my time on writing when I can practice more? And what I feel is that they both nourish each other. And I had some amazing insights about um, my, my dissertation while practicing and teaching. And when I'm teaching and practicing, I am thinking about what I discovered during my uh, long time research. I am treating my students differently. I am much more skeptic today. And I try to inform my colleagues about um, problems that may occur in yoga classes and in taking things for granted. I think that skepticism and just asking questions constantly is very important. And it is actually a characteristic of, of yoga. It is called vichara in Sanskrit, which is uh, to explore, um, okay. to Yes, to ask, to, to research. So a characteristic of yoga is to research and a characteristic of my research is yoga. That sounds like it's meant to be, like it's really complementing each other, not necessarily, you know, one is better than the other or you could do one without the other, maybe even you could argue. Yes, I agree. For me, that's, that's the way it is. Many yoga scholars uh, have have started their way uh, as practitioners and teachers, and at a certain point they they stopped. So most mm -hmm. researchers that I meet have a past of being yoga practitioners or teachers, and then they say that when they understood the depth of yoga uh, from an academic point of view, they could not teach what you call mainstream yoga anymore. They could not teach mm. posture-centered classes. Uh, and for me, that's not the case, since although I am teaching posture-centered classes, for me, it's just a tool of uh, self-inquiry of that vichara, that research. Okay, cool. So you're not planning to give up yoga anytime soon? Definitely not. Can I ask you um, how much time in your week you are practicing yoga? So ideally, I would have uh, a 90-minute practice daily. Uh, when I'm on vacation, I would have three hours. That's a very good time. Uh, if I would have a friend over, three hours of, of practice time would be sufficient. And uh, since the one and a half years since uh, giving birth, I don't have that time. I practice whenever I can, and that's sufficient. Uh, actually, I wrote uh, a chapter about that in my dissertation, um, Motherhood and the Practice of Yoga. Okay. And that's, that's the picture. When you become a mother, you have less time to practice in the first years. And then it, it should come back. I should have more time. My uh, postdoc research is supposed to be about motherhood and asceticism. Okay, so, so also that's the next step. <laughs> okay, yeah, 90 minutes a day uh, before you had your first child um, sounds 
very doable to me for a PhD student. Um, so it doesn't sound like anything that could clash with your time that you're supposed to spend on your PhD. Um, so that's, that's, I'm actually not, that's actually surprising to me. I thought it was going to be maybe much more. <laughs> okay. And then you already mentioned your postdoc. Um, and that, um, is a part of our last question, which is the most important one of this show. And that is, what are you going to do with that? Right? Because everyone would ask you, what are you going to do with a PhD on yoga? So what is your next step? You're now doing a postdoc and what do you see in the near future? So yes, I hope to do a postdoc. I hope to get into a program for next year. Uh, my plan is to keep on researching yoga and informing others. I've been invited to talk on um, yoga teachers training courses. I've been invited to talk uh, in different colleges in Israel um, about gender and women, gender and Hinduism. And I do hope to uh, disseminate whatever I learned and whatever I discovered in these years of practice about yoga and women. Very cool. Okay, so do you think that you see yourself in academia in the future? Is that something you're trying to pursue? I really hope so. Uh, I'm not optimistic enough. I know that the numbers are against me, but um, I will do my best and I really hope to get into academia in the future, yes. Do you think you have an idea yourself of what your field would require you to do to be able to make a career in academia? Would it be enough to do a postdoc in Israel, for example? You've had three of your degrees from the same university. Some people have told me that you need to try and get as many things on your CV as possible. Are you considering maybe going to another place? Uh, you said that in, in the UK they have studies on yoga now, right? I found a hostess at uh, the Heidelberg uh, University in Germany at the South Asian uh, Institute, which is a very important institute. It's very interdisciplinary. And my hostess uh, researches uh, gender uh, in Tamil Nadu in south of uh, India. So that's a very good match. And I hope that, that with that postdoc and perhaps with the book in my hand, I will get a position at the Israeli academia. Uh, but then again, maybe I will find my place elsewhere in the world. And that's also fine. Would it be possible to do a postdoc on this particular topic in India, where this, these texts that you've been studying originate from? Of course, my field work will be in India, but the academic affiliation um, will probably be at, uh, at Europe or the United States. Right. I, I already thought that much, but I wasn't sure if that was the case, so I wanted to ask you. We have talked on this show uh, more often about... Um, who is researching what as an insider or an outsider, right? The position of the researcher in the project, um, but also um, how a lot is being studied in the West about other places in the world. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Um, during my PhD, I had a lot of thoughts about uh, my own positioning as a scholar practitioner. So in many ways, I'm an insider to the phenomenon that I was researching. 
I was talking with Iyengar yoga teachers from around the world with who had many, much more experience than me teaching Iyengar yoga, of course. But in a way, I was an insider and I knew the inner uh, language and the, the nuances. So that really helped to promote my research. In my postdoc, I will be researching um, uh, an Indian community. So as a white woman coming from Israel, going to India to talk to, to brown women, I would say I would be an outsider. But at the same time, I don't think that these separate identities really exist. Uh, we are much more complex than that. So I'm not only Israeli, I'm also Hungarian and German. I'm also an immigrant. I'm also um, a mother. I'm also a scholar. I'm also a practitioner of yoga. I am many things, and they are not only brown women, right? They, they come from a certain educational background, from a certain religious background, and so on. So putting these categories of East and West and rich and poor and educated, uneducated and all that, I don't really believe in it. Although in academia, we have to address it. It's, it's much too simple. It's to simplify reality. And when I interview people, I, I'm, I'm talking to another person. I'm not talking to a category. But of course, you have to be aware of the power relations and uh, you have to be aware to your, uh, to your positionality. Of course, I, I agree with that, but also not to take things too simplicity. Right. I like that answer. I'll try to integrate that a little bit for the next time. Thank you. All right, I have then only a few more last short questions left, so we'll try to keep it short, too. And then the first one would be, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? So when one adapts yoga to suit the needs of women, uh, it says something about women and also about yoga. I think my greatest contribution is that when you look at the phenomenon, you have to look at both ends. The fact that women are practicing yoga is changing yoga. And the fact that yoga is taught to women perhaps says something about women and, and perhaps uh, designs uh, ideas of women about themselves. So this is what I research deeply in my dissertation, also about how yoga practices have changed with contrast to what they are believed to have been as original practice compared to adapted practice. But then I also looked at what it implies for women. What does it mean to be a woman um, according to these uh, adaptations? What is uh, required from women and uh what women can and cannot do. And I think that these questions uh, in this context uh, have not been asked before. Sounds good. I would be very interested to see some of your next publications, whether that is articles or books, to uh, read about this a bit more in depth. All right, then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? So my grandfather from my mother's side uh, he started his life as a carpenter. He survived the Second World War and uh, returned to Hungary. And eventually he became an art 
critique and his ability to um, to survive and then to strive uh, was also something that I looked up at and uh, I always found it very impressive how whatever happens to you in life you can always recreate whoever you are and you decide what you do in your life. He's also the one who uh, told me about India when I was a child and maybe placed the seeds of curiosity in me. Sounds like it. Sounds like a very strong man, but also despite all of the things that he has been through to find a passion again, right? To see things in art, to love things again. Then the last one is supposedly the easiest one. And that is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? If I'm totally exhausted, I would get a shower, a warm shower with some soap. And if I'm not totally exhausted, I would sit down and practice some yoga. I could have, I could have figured that last answer. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, Agni, for joining us today and for sharing your story with us. I also want to thank the audience for listening once again. Don't forget to connect with us with the handle at what to do with that on social media, on YouTube, and also our website. We'd love to hear what you think. I wanted to ask you one more thing, and that is actually, when did you start uh, yoga yourself? How did you get into? Um, I was 15, and I did not know anything about yoga, really, but I was curious. And a friend of mine said, let's try. And I got to the class, she did not. I signed up oh, okay. and stayed, <laughs> and she did not. <laughs> and I, I was just, I was hooked from the first class. Okay, just like that. Yes, yes, just like that. It was quite amazing. And then when my yoga teacher left Israel, I wanted to study with him in France, and he said that's not possible since he's not teaching anymore. And then I said, I want to teach, I want to learn from your teacher then. And that's how I got to India, um, to his yoga teacher in that southern community in India. 